I think it's really important to start by realizing that all marriages take work. Some people's marriage takes more work than others. And that's just the nature of things. That's okay. Some people's marriage is going to take a lot of work and others not as much. But they all take a lot of work. And I think some of the reasons for that is, one, we're just constantly having to make adjustments. A uh, big adjustment is from when we're dating and then we're married and suddenly we're living with the person 24-7. And you begin to learn a few things about the person that you didn't realize before you got married, right? All right, that takes some adjustments. Sometimes there's some big surprises. Oh, wow, <laughs> I, I never realized I was going to have to deal with that. Or, wow, I never realized we were that different. Uh, then also we realize that men are not women, and women are not men. I don't know why. I often, I just think we do. We instinctively think women are like men, and they're going to think like we do and act like we do. And that is not how God created us. He created man and woman, and we are different. And we have to adjust to that. So it's natural that there's going to be conflict, and it's going to take work. Uh, the fact that we have conflict or that we got to work at our marriage should be no surprise. It's, it's natural that we have to do that because of these adjustments. And then lastly, our constantly changing circumstances of life. When kids come along or after we're married, job situations, just things are constantly changing in our life. And so we have to make those adjustments. And I want us to be realistic about marriage. I heard somebody say this just recently, and I realized, wow, that's true for me. And the statement is, there is nobody that I've ever loved more than Helen. You know, she is my best friend. She has brought so much joy into my life. That is absolutely the truth. But another truth is, she has made me madder than any other person <laughs> in the world. I don't know how she does it, but she has gotten me, on occasion, unglued. Okay? And the truth of the matter is, the same for her. I know she loves me. I am her best friend. But I, at times, have made her madder than anyone or anything else in the world. And when it's happened, sometimes I've just stood there and said, I can't believe I, am, I do that to my wife. I'm not even trying to make her mad or upset or frustrated. And I've just reduced her to a weeping pile of pitifulness, you know. That, that's marriage. That's marriage. I love the story. There was a couple, they were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And they were interviewing them, you know, and everybody's putting them on this pedestal. Wow, you're so wonderful. 50 years, that's just amazing. And somebody asked uh, the husband, they said, in those 50 years, did you ever think about divorce? And immediately said, no, never thought about divorce. In 50 years, never thought about divorce. Murder, yes, but divorce, no, no, okay? Um, we can relate to that, okay? There are times we just get so stinking mad, so frustrated, okay? All of us, we all struggle. It's a challenge for all of us. And that's why today I want us to look at some of the fundamentals of marriage. You know, there are a ton of books out there about, about marriage, but I found that there's one, and I want to, Talk some about that today. It's just heads and above better than all the others. And that's this book right here. 
And that's why I want to focus on this. There's lots of teachings on techniques for marriage and little exercises you can do. And there, a lot of them are good. I don't want to put those down. But the core principles in the Bible are life-giving and are key. The Bible has included exactly the things we need to know, especially the fundamentals. And I brought my tennis racket because I was thinking about this. I like to play tennis. I don't play a whole lot. But I was figuring out the other day, 26 years ago, I decided I was tired of being a plunker when I got out there and played tennis. I wanted to get better. So I'm, I'm from a frugal family. Helen's from a frugal family. We're frugal people. So to me, I, I looked into it. It was going to cost $40 an hour. So $40 for one hour of a tennis lesson. I was like, wow, that's just ridiculous. I'm not going to take a tennis lesson. I'll just read a book or something. But finally, I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. So I really paid attention, okay? And there were, this, the, the tennis instructor just worked on three things. Okay, he said, there's a lot of important things in tennis. There's the, the toss and the serve. There's coming up to the net and volleying at the net. But the fundamentals of tennis is hitting the ball back and forth, the ground stroke. And so he taught me, so this will be free, you don't even have to pay $40 for this, okay? <laughs> All right, so he taught three things. He said, one, on, I'm, I'm going to do my backhand because my forehand's no good. But for some reason, I can hit a backhand okay. Your backhand, when you get ready, have the racket back. All right, don't be waiting for the ball like this. Get it back. Number two, you want to hit the ball off your front foot right about here. So if the ball is going to be right about here, over there, move over there. Or if you need to go back so that it's going to be right here, move around to that spot. And then lastly, you follow through. In fact, he would say, follow through on the bottom of your racket. I always played with a Wilson and had a W. He said, I want to know what your name is. W for Wade. Or sometimes, oh, Maid. Or, okay, Wade. <laughs> okay. So get it back, hit it off your front foot, and follow through. Okay, so don't do this at home. Definitely don't do this at church with expensive sound equipment. So like that, Okay. The fundamentals. And so whenever I'm playing tennis and I'm not doing well, I go back to those three things. Okay, wait. Think about it. The basics. Are you getting your racket back, getting ready for it to come? Are you hitting it off your front foot? And are you following through? Are you showing the guy, your opponent, the bottom of your racket? Those are the fundamentals. The core principles. And it's really helpful. It's not everything about tennis. But if you do those three things and you work on it, it will really be helpful. And that's what I want to do with the Bible today, is quickly look at seven principles, and then we're going to boil it down to even three to really focus on. That will be very helpful. And it's these seven principles. The husband is the head of the house. The wife is to be the husband's helper, companion, partner, we're going to talk about that term because I think it's important. In glorifying and enjoying God, God hates divorce and likens it to bloody violence. Sex was designed by God to be enjoyed in marriages, in marriage, and spouses should not deny it to each other. Men are to sacrificially love their wives. Men are not to treat their wives harshly, but with understanding. And women are to submit and to respect their husbands. I think these are seven key fundamentals, but 
if I, if I was your tennis instructor and gave you seven things to think about, okay, now add, I got those three already, now add to that uh, picture that you're hitting the ball off the back of your hand. Remember to power off your back leg and twist your torso and uh, think about tense, uh, relaxing the muscles in your forearm. So now I've given you seven things to think about. You're going to fall apart. You, you can't do seven, think about seven things. In the same way, I want to kind of boil this down to, to three that, that uh, are especially helpful. And they're going to be different for the men and the women. So first of all, the husband is the head of the house. 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Uh, the Bible couldn't be more clear about this. Okay? This is not always popular in modern day society. But the Bible is our authority. It's our instruction book for how to live. And so we do what it says and we're blessed. Then this is a passage about head coverings. Very complicated passage. But I just want to point out one thing in here. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. So now, uh, I think Paul's already dealt with some of these issues of uh, egalitarianism versus complementarianism and are women less than men. Oh, that's, that's bunk. What this is saying is God created both man and woman in his image. They both are equally valuable. They have different roles. The Bible doesn't put down women. In fact, look at this statement. But woman is the glory of man. Helen, you are the glory of man. All of you women, you are the glory. Is that a put down? No, you are glorious, it's saying. So it's very clear about this. The Bible's not putting women down. It's a different role, and we're going to look at that role because I think it's important. But the Bible clearly says man is the head of the house. A big problem in, uh, in marriages comes right here all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis. Let's look at this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Satan comes to tempt them to disobey God. Does he go to the head of the house, the husband? No, he goes to the woman. And what did the husband do? Nothing. Nothing. And since that day, this is one of the primary sins that men have to battle against. And husbands in our marriages, we have to battle against passivity. Doing nothing when we should be taking the initiative. Okay, here, Adam should have said, hey, Satan, wait a minute. What are you talking to my wife about? I'm the head of this house. What, what, what's this issue? Okay, but he lets his wife just... and. And the wife here, it's an example of her not letting the husband be the head, but she takes the initiative here. And the Bible points out later, the end result was not good. And uses as an example of why the husband should be the head and the wife um, following him, submitting to him. 
but this is a big issue. Men, we are to be the leaders. I was just hearing somebody talking this week about their boss, and they said, oh, yeah, we got this guy. He is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. I told my boss about it, and he agrees, and yes, it's a problem, but he won't do anything. He doesn't like conflict. He just, he's spineless. He, he won't do anything about it. It's obviously a problem. And this person was talking how much it just irked him. Oh, they just despise their boss because there's a problem and he's passive. He does nothing. But we men need to look at ourselves in the same way. And we should feel that same sickness in our stomach that we feel toward a boss who does nothing as ourselves as husbands when we become passive. Larry Crabb wrote a book called The Silence of Adam. Okay, a whole book about that. I've not read it. Just the title uh, gets me. I, I understand what the book's about. It's about that. The silence of Adam. Oh, it just makes my stomach sick. Because I can relate to that. There's times I struggle with that. All of us men struggle to take initiative instead of being passive. Okay? In the same way. So the silence of Adam. I remember George Verwer loves books. He's with OM and... And we once said, oh, there's this book we're selling on the back table, Failure, the Back Door to Success. I've never read the book, but man, the title just blesses me. Well, in the same way, the title of that book, The Silence of Adam. Oh, it makes me sick. But that, as men, we need to deal with that. We're to be the leader, so lead. We need to lead. Okay, secondly... The wife is to be the husband's helper, companion, partner in glorifying and enjoying God. Okay, I think this word helper, um, often in our minds we think of, oh, a helper, like a house helper, a servant that comes and helps clean our house. That's what the wife, that's what the Bible is saying the wife needs to be. But that's a gross misrepresentation of what this is talking about. I think the term companion is much better, a partner even a, a match, a mate, are much better. We look here in Genesis, the account. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. And we later see God, this word fit, I think uh, even the word handcrafted. God handcrafts the wife to be exactly what the man is looking for. Then after that, I won't read it all, Man names, gives names to all the livestock. And, um, but right here. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God makes him fall asleep, takes one of the ribs, and fashions it into a woman. And then he brings it to man. And listen to what the man said. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Okay, this, this is me. All those animals, they weren't like me. They were of some other substance. But this is me of my bone, of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So she was perfectly crafted for him. All right, your wife has been crafted for God, for you, for what you need. And to fit, you are to fit together just as we see here. And he said, For this reason, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, hold tight to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and the woman and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is what God wants. He wants one flesh, and with that, a oneness that goes beyond. Often people think this is just talking about sex, so then they are to have sex. Well, no, it's, it's that plus more. There's to be a unity there where they're both naked, they're exposed, and yet they're not ashamed. This is what God wants. And so this, this helper is not a servant. This very interesting passage in Malachi is a situation where Malachi the prophet is talking to Israel, telling them what they've, how they've screwed up. And he said, um, but you say, why does, he not basically answer, why does God not answer our prayers and bless us? And he says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of her youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In the Hebrew, this is a different word than the word helper in Genesis 2 and 3 that we saw, or in Genesis 2. Uh, it's only used once in the Bible, but it's best translated companion. Big difference between companion and house servant or house helper, right? God wants the husband and wife to be companions. And then interesting here, he did not make them one with the did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking from them? Godly offspring. Okay? So here he tells more about what he's wanting from the husband and wife. He wants them to produce godly offspring. Okay, that's one of the, the roles. So the wife is to be the companion or the partner, the match for the husband. Okay, a companion, Webster says, is a person with whom one spends lots of time and or with whom one travels. Okay, So to be companions. And I want to stop here. The Bible says we're to be companions. Companions are spend time together. They travel. It's this idea, I think, of being on a journey. with We're on a journey with our wife. But the question we have to ask is, are we spending time? In all, there's so much busyness in our world today, and, and technology has, seems to be making things more busy. People are spending more time sitting in a restaurant with their spouse, both texting on their phone and not even looking at each other. This is an issue that tears marriages apart, where... They're not being companions. They're not spending time together. A companion spends time, journeys together with the other. Is, is that happening in, in your marriage? And there may be singles here today or people that are divorced. Um, I think these principles are to be helpful for, for all of us, even though I may not address singleness in particular. Um, I think all these are really helpful for us to understand the big picture of God. Then also this word that they translate as helper, uh, I wrote the wrong Hebrew word. I know you Hebrew scholars are going to catch that. Uh, I'll give you, it's actually Ezer Konegdo. Okay, Ezer Konegdo, which means exact correspondence. So it was this idea the wife was a match, like the two puzzle pieces exactly correspond okay, to make this one whole. Okay, that's what we're talking about when we say the wife's to be a helper, the match, the companion. Okay. Adam was, Eve was created to keep Adam from being alone. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Here, he, Adam and, uh, and God are in perfect relationship with each other. And still, God says, it's not good. Okay. 
Adam and God is not enough. Okay? That's crazy to think about. You think, oh, some people say, oh, all I need is Jesus in me. We can conquer it all. Well, no, God's saying, well, no, there's a special relationship of marriage here that God designed to keep Adam from being alone. Now, for people that are single, God calls that a special gift. He gives people the gift of singleness. Okay? Um, so this is not to discount that or to say, oh, unless you get married, you can never, you'll always feel alone. No. If God gives you that gift of singleness, then he provides in this special supernatural way. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural gift. Okay, then what are they created to do? Basically, to bring maximum glory. This is what I said, my statement I use to say what God's purpose is, we see in the Bible and in the world. To bring maximum glory to the Godhead by, bringing, by multiplying loving, maturing disciples from among every nation, tongue, and tribe. So everywhere in the world, God wants to see people in a love relationship with him. And as husband and wife, that's part, that's a big part. That's God's purposes. That needs to be our purposes as well. In fact, oops, if we go back, the first command God gave to Adam and Eve is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Many people say, oh, he's just telling them, multiply, be fruitful, have sex. Yes, but much more than that. It's this idea, at that time, that they hadn't fallen. So he's telling them, just as you have a per- per- perfect relationship with me, I want you to fill the earth. God wants the earth filled with people that are in relationship with him. That fits in exactly with this idea we talked about of he wants godly offspring from parents. Part of our role is to multiply our godly lifestyle into our children, um, or many times we think of it, we want them to be more godly than us. Hopefully they'll, we can pass on all the good and we can, they can overcome some of the issues we've dealt with. And it's cool to see that happening. Okay? So that God gets glory. And, and I put in here, just I want to mentally mention, oh, I, I said bring glory to the Godhead. Okay? Because the interesting thing we see, it talks about how when everything is put under Jesus' feet at the, uh, in the future, what does he do? He then takes it all and he turns it all over to the Father. Jesus wants to glorify the Father. The Father is wanting to glorify Jesus by putting people from every nation, tongue, and tribe under him and subjected to him and him ruling over them. And the Spirit is working to see uh, the Godhead glorified. So the, the Father, Son, Spirit are all outdoing each other, trying to glorify each other. God's not selfish to try to bring glory to himself. No, he's trying to bring glory to the other members of the Godhead. It's an amazing idea to think about. Okay, thirdly. So, so just to go back, okay, the wife is to be a companion, a partner, a match. Okay? Is that happening? Are you, in your marriage, companions? Are you sharing life together? Okay? And that takes time. And if you don't have time together, that's, you need to think about how are we going to make that happen in our marriage. All right, briefly, God hates divorce and likens it to bloody violence. Wow, that's a disturbing statement. But look at this verse in Malachi. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of her youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that man covers his garment with violence. 
says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit. Do not be faithless. Okay? So in God's eyes, to divorce your wife is an act of violence. You, you cover your garment with violence. I mean, it's this picture of blood all over your garment, isn't it? That's the image God has of when he thinks of when you divorce your wife. Okay. Now, we live in a fallen world. Everybody agrees. Even people getting divorced agree. Divorce is a horrible thing. It's horrible on the people going through it. It's horrible on the kids. Nobody wants that. Um, it still happens. And for those that are divorced, we're a community to help those people. One, to do everything we can to keep it together. Um, but after the divorce, then we're a community to help those people to move on. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Um, God hates it. All of us hate it. Um, but if it happens as a community, we're there to support people and help them. Okay. Also, just briefly, Jesus said the same thing. He, or he says this idea. He said, Have you not read that God who created man and woman from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast tightly to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he's saying God is involved in marriage. God is the one that joins people together. So if, it's, if God is the one that created marriage and joins people together, no man should be pulling them apart. God is in marriage. It's his idea. He designed it. If you've got a problem with the concept of, of marriage, you need to talk to God about it because he was the designer. And he says, I put it together. No man ought to be pulling it apart. Next, sex was designed by God to be enjoyed in marriage. Spouses should not deny it to each other. I didn't really go with any of the passages that talk about uh, the Song of Solomon, some other places about how great sex is. Uh, I'll leave that message for Paul sometime. Um, but I did want to look at 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. Okay, that's a sex, basically, we're talking there. Likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Oh, well, wait a minute. Here's where the Bible gets really sexist, okay? The wife doesn't have authority over, his bi- over her bi- own body. The husband has authority over it. That, oh, come on. Is that in the Bible? That is so sexist. That puts women down so much, doesn't it? Can you believe that? You believe in this Christian religion that does that? Well, keep reading. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Oh, I get it. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not deprive one another of sex is what it's saying here. Okay, it's pretty straightforward. Now, this, we, this, there's a lot more to this. We don't, it doesn't mean you demand sex from the other. Um, um, this could get out of hand. But the idea is don't deprive one another. And um, I, an amazing thing, um, Helen and I have been married 19 years. And 
in 19 years, only one time did she say, oh, honey, I have a headache, okay? And it turns out that time she'd gone to bed a little early, and I came in and said, <clears throat> honey, uh, <laughs> and she said, oh, I went to bed early. I've got a migraine. I'm really, she was really, really had a headache and wasn't feeling good. So that's pretty amazing, huh? <laughs> All right. I am blessed by God. And so you may ask why. And the only conclusion I can come to is because of my sexual prowess in making love and how amazingly I satisfy my wife. Why would she want to say no? But I asked her the other day, Honey, why, why is it? You know, I was hoping she would say, yes, honey, you satisfy me. She said, well, it's a command in the Bible. <laughs> Why wouldn't I want to obey it? Okay, well, that's great, too. I mean, I wish I was like that with every command in the Bible. Just take it at face value and go with it. Okay. But the reality is many, case, many times this is not the case in our marriages. And if that is, that's a red flag should go up. If you're denying each other of sex, the Bible says that's a problem. Need to get that work. Something is not right. Got to get that worked out. Okay. It's pretty straightforward. Let me add one other thing here just as a bonus. I, I thought I saw this somewhere. I did some research and confirmed it. Years ago, I saw this. Um, you know, if. We're going to get later here to see that as far as needs in marriage, one of, a man's top one tends to be sex. And that doesn't even make the top five on a woman's list of biggest needs in marriage. Affection, yes, but sex, not really. So men and women are so different. But uh, I'm going to hopefully score some brownie points for the men here. And I maybe the women will be blessed by this too. But I read this in Reader's Digest. I thought years ago, I looked it up and I found it. They ran an article. There's a guy named Dr. David Weeks. He's a neuropsychologist at the Royal Edinburgh in Scotland Hospital. And he studied 3,500 people. Uh, he did all ages, but this particular study, he focused on people between 40 and 50. But he took pictures of them. And he had people rate, uh, guess what their age was. Okay? And this is what he found that people that had sex more often looked, on an average, seven years younger than those who didn't. Now, I know women especially want to look youthful. I mean, I mean men, I guess, do too. But, I mean, look, all the lotions in marriage. That was one thing for me in marriage. Lotions? What are all these lotions? I got a bar of soap. I don't even use shaving cream. I just use soap and shave. You know, I don't, I don't have any lotion. What is the deal? Well, I understand. Women want their skin. I appreciate that. I like my wife's soft, beautiful skin. Okay? But seven years younger. All right? I know you say, well, that's a, what is it? A lot of how much sex you got? It was basically three times a week versus people that had sex twice a week. Three times a week, people appeared seven years younger. All right, you can go check that out. All right, got Henry's attention here. <laughs> All right, you guys can thank me later for that uh, little study and look it up, David, Dr. David Weeks. Okay. 
All right, important one. Men are to sacrificially love their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, then down here. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's sacrificially. Jesus sacrificed for the church. Husbands, we have the honor to emulate Jesus in being servant leaders to our wife, where we sacrifice for their well-being. It's a noble calling. Okay? And sometimes it seems, oh, it's so difficult to sacrifice, to give up what we want to do to do something that's going to be for the benefit of someone else. But the Bible says here, he who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, if, if you hate your wife, you're hating your own flesh. But instead, you, you ought to want to nourish and cherish it. I love the word cherish. I think anytime you sacrificially love someone, you're cherishing them. So I like that term. We Husbands, we need to cherish our wife. We need to make them feel cherished. Okay, And if I could translate this like maybe the message would, it would be, husbands... To not love your wives is stupid. I mean, it's like not loving yourself. It's like, not, it's like harming your own body. Okay? So the Bible says, husbands, don't be stupid. Love your wives. It's for your own benefit. It's going to bless you. And it is so true. God blesses us as we sacrificially love our wives. We, our marriages are transformed. Our wives suddenly find it much, much easier to submit to us. What does it mean to, to, how do we sacrificially love our wives? Well, that's a very complicated topic, but what I want to focus on today is we're going to talk in a few minutes about meeting her needs. Find out, be a student of your wife. Find out what is it that she needs? What would make her feel loved? And do those things. Let's keep it simple here. All right, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay, also, men are not to treat their wives harshly, but with understanding. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I wonder why God had to have a special verse in the Bible just about men being harsh with their wives. Because it's a problem. Uh, there's times when I want to tell my wife something and after I say it, I said, wow, that came out a lot harsher than I wanted it to. I have to work not to be harsh. And whenever I'm harsh, it hurts my wife and it grieves me. Husbands, we need to be careful. We need to be more gentle with our wives. Okay. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. Live with them in an understanding way. Understand that being harsh with your wife is not going to accomplish anything. That's not the way to their heart. It's not the way to strengthen your marriage. And realize we don't live in an understanding way and we don't show honor to them, our prayers are hindered. Wow. That's pretty serious business. God is serious about this. Our prayers are hindered when we're not honoring our wives as we should. Okay. Women are to submit to and respect their husbands. All right. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And it talks about the husband being the head. Then down here it ends with, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I really think this is 
interesting how we have submit and respect, and they're very similar. If you respect your husband, you will submit to him. If you submit to your husband, you're showing you'll respect him. We don't use this as a hammer on our wives. Why, honey, you must submit to me. Okay? No, if, if we're sacrificially loving our wife, it's easy for a wife to submit to a husband doing that. If your husband is sacrificially loving you, cherishing you, it's not hard to submit. The problem is us men too often are passive. Too often we're not cherishing our wives and sacrificially loving them. And as we do that, that makes it so much easier on our wives. Not to say the wives never have issues, but husbands, if we will do our role, it makes it so much easier on our wives. How does this look in our family? Whenever Helen and I have a decision, we sit. I don't say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm the head of the house. We're going to do it this way. No, we sit and we talk about it, and then we pray about it. For example, a vacation or something. When we should take it? Oh, is that too much money? talk it over, we discuss it, then we pray about it, and normally we, afterwards we talk, yeah, I think this would be good, what do you think? Yeah, we have a peace about it. What happens if I say, oh, I think that's too much money, we shouldn't go fly down there, let's just stay around here and have a vacation around the area, and, and my, Helen says, oh, I, just, I just feel like it would be really good for us to go out, and no, I'm, hus- I'm the head of the house, we're going to do it this way. No, we pray, if we don't have a peace from God, that's a sign to me that one of us isn't hearing God right. And as long as we have time, we'll pray again. And inevitably, in our marriage, we get to a point where, yeah, I think that's right. We both, I, I, I kind of, God's giving me a sense, yeah, we should do it like you were talking. Or she says, yeah, I think what you're saying is right. I, I prayed about it. We come to that. One time in our marriage, there was something that came up. It was about tickets to fly somewhere and something about money. And we had to make a decision by like, that day at 2 o'clock. And oh, we talked about throughout the day, and we got to 2 o'clock, had to make a decision. We didn't have a peace. That was where this came into effect. I had to make the decision as head of the house. But it, it wasn't because I'm supposed to sacrificially love her. I have to take her needs into account. So I have to make a decision that's going to be honoring to God and what's best for our family. So even when we are head of the house and we have to make that decision... Still, it's not our, we don't get our way. We, we want to do what's honoring to God and best for our family. Okay. I'll just mention briefly here that we've talked about these seven areas. And I'm sure, like me, there are areas where you say, wow, we're not doing so hot in our marriage in that area. And we need to do, we need to do better. You may need to take time. I encourage you this week, take time. To stop and wait and ask God. Uh, have a time of, of confessing where you've fallen short and asking forgiveness. And um, Just very briefly, I want to just focus on this right here. A lot of times we'll say, I'm sorry I did that. I was, I was wrong. Sometimes we don't even say I'm wrong. I just, I'm sorry. The other person then wants to say, oh, it's okay. But it's not okay. So we say, I was wrong. But a good thing to say is inquire about that. You know, I, I haven't been very good at being gentle with you. I've been too harsh. He said, I'm sure that's made you feel hurt at times. You leave it like that and then give your spouse a chance to say, yeah, I've often felt when you do that, it makes me feel like you don't really care about my opinion or whatever. She can express what she felt. Then 
when you ask her to forgive her, it's much easier to forgive after you've told the person how it affected you, how it made you hurt. Often that step is left out. But inquire about it. That must really, you must really have felt hurt when I was so harsh toward you, huh? So it's an inviting them to explain, yes, that did make me feel this way. And so then they know you understand it. And vice versa, for the, the wife with the husband. So get, that's an important part. And then always stop by granting forgiveness. I, we always say, honey, will you forgive me for that? Or for not, I wasn't very sensitive about it. Will you forgive me? And she says, yes, I forgive you. I won't hold that against you. Those words are very powerful. What does forgiveness mean? It means I'm not going to hold it against you. Okay. Oh, I wanted to play this beautiful song. We're running short on time. I just wanted, there's a book called His Needs, Her Needs. He says women's top three needs when he did statistical research was honesty and openness, family commitment, and affection. It's interesting. This is what the Bible addresses. Okay. This companionship, this partnership, okay, affection, okay, intimacy, oneness. Right? And then for men, the top three were sexual fulfillment, admiration, which is very much related to respect, and a recreational companion or companionship, somebody to share life with. Okay, and his whole book's focused on, he says basically divorces happen because husband's needs and wife's needs aren't being met by their husband, they find it met somewhere else. So if you want to divorce-proof your marriage, make sure you're meeting each other's needs. There's some validity to that. I would spend more of our time focusing on these biblical concepts, but that's a, a helpful one as well. Okay, and in this regard, uh, this week what I want to do is ask all of you to take a date night or some time alone where you'll sit with your spouse and you'll say, you can talk about these things, and eventually I want you to get around to the question of what are one or two things that you would like me to work on. Okay, you're on a date night, so you're not angry at each other. You're at, someone's taking care of the kids. You're having a nice meal. You can civilly talk about these issues. In the heat of the moment is not the time to try to figure out your, how to fix your marriage. It's on a date night like this. Someone in our, uh, years ago gave Helen and I this advice, and we've been pretty regular at doing date nights, and and at times, we will ask this question. Okay? Typically, uh, she will say to me, Honey, um, please work at... I've just suddenly drawn a blank here. I'm going to get it here. <laughs> 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 All right, let's go with what I normally ask her. <laughs> okay, I tell her, Honey, try to be, be on time. Try not to be as, as critical of other people and me. Okay, and I can't, I can't think of mine either. <laughs> and then hers are, honey, if we could give me time every day to talk, give time, let's pray together, and then if you can make time for, ensure that I'm having some time for my quiet time and to exercise, okay? Those typically over the years come up. And, and what's amazing is if I will work on those and really be diligent about making some changes for me to meet her needs, it's amazing. Just this week, I had Derwin hold me accountable to us praying every day and talking. And this was a fantastic We both said at the end, like, wow, this was just a great week. What a huge difference. A couple of little things do. Is it impossible? I don't know for 19 years why that's been so hard to make a habit in our life. But it makes a big difference. And if you'll do that with your spouse this week, talk about one or two things that you would like them to change. And then work on it. 
and use your accountability partner to help you so that you do those things. 19 years, I don't know why that was so difficult, but as soon as I tell Derwin, hey, I want to pray with my wife every day and have some time to talk with her, will you hold me accountable to that? It worked, that little difference. It's wonderful, this system we have here at, at Crossway to help us. Now, what I think, real quick on accountability, sometimes we think of accountability as just somebody that scolds you. Oh, you didn't do it. You said you were going to do it. What happened? That's not accountability. Accountability is someone that roots for you. Your accountability partner prays for you, encourages you, reminds you daily about what you were going to do. Ask how you're progressing. When you don't do well, they help you troubleshoot to figure out why you're not having success. And then they celebrate your victory as a team victory. It's our victory. We're accountability partners. I'm invested in you. I want to see you be successful. That's been so helpful this week even. And and just little things like that can make a huge difference in improving our marriage, getting up to where there's more trust and we can then start working on other issues as well. Also, make goals with your partner. What do, you, what do I need to be held accountable for? Not to what I want to or what I'm just willing to. I mean, I don't want you to think you're unwilling to, but often we just say, well, why don't I work on this? But there's some other issue that you really need to be working on. So ask the question, God, what, do I, what ought I be working on? What ought I ask my accountability partner to help me with? Okay. So use your accountability. All right, for men, three things that I think are the fundamentals. We talked about in tennis, if you had to reduce it to three things, be a good companion, enjoy, discuss life together with your companion. Sacrificially love your wife and don't be harsh with her. Women, Submit and respect your husband. Be a good companion to him, just like Eve was supposed to be to Adam. And do not deny your husband sex. Okay, now we've, t- we've talked about some of the details of that. And then here, application is taking time together this week. Give them one or two things that you, they want you to work on. So often what we want to do is change our spouse. It doesn't work. Change yourself and it will inspire your spouse to want to change. I've seen that happen. It's the only way I've seen people change their spouse is through their behavior, through changing themselves. They inspire their spouses. Wow, we talk about that. He's, he's been doing it every, every day. He's praying with me every day. Uh, we're talking about things happening uh, in our schedule. Wow, I think I better get working on my things too. It really can work because we're loving the other. We're giving to the other. God blesses. When we give, that's when we receive. Okay. Well, we're going to have Helen come up. Uh, we're going to pray. And then the, during the prayer, if Taco will uh, get all the cards. You can just pass those down or get them to him somehow. And we'll shuffle those and look at a few of those. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it is truth. Lord, thank you that of all the millions of books about marriage, we can look in your word and know that we're really looking at the core issues. Lord, help us this week to be obedient, not to just talk about this. Lord, a 50-minute talk on marriage has very little chance of transforming people's lives. But when it's your word and when people then wrestle with it and put it into action in their lives, Lord, that is powerful. So I pray your Holy Spirit, open the doors so that people will find a way to do this this week. And, uh, Lord, that we can really honor you and see your blessings in our marriage and can pass them on in blessing to others to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.
When do you know it's time to seek out outside help to deal with issues in your marriage? And what if your spouse is resistant? So the question is, when do you need to seek help? Okay, what are the warning signs? Well, I would say from some of those that we listed, if, if you're not seeing, uh, if, you're, if there's not submissiveness, if there's not the husband sacrificially loving the wife or, or even loving the wife, you go back to the list. There's talk of divorce. We made a rule that we would never use the D word in our house. And only one time it came up. You know, we said, no, remember, we made a commitment. We are, that is not an option. So if that becomes mentioned and you start talking about it, that should be another red flag. Um, denying sex to each other, that should be a red flag. The husband treating the wife harshly, especially more and more often. And the, the husband not feeling respected or the wife not submitting to him. I would say those would be some key red flags. I, I think sometimes when you have a lot of conflicts and you're just not able to come together, it's healthy to have somebody to come in and hear you and listening to both sides of the story and be able to give you a different way of looking at that. Because I think we don't wait for our cars to break down before we go see a mechanic. I think we have regular tune-ups. So for us, we really work at that. We regularly go to um, marriage workshops, and we regularly get together with other couples and see how they do their marriage dates or how they work out certain issues. I think those are um, healthy inputs you could put into your marriage. But I think what Wade said, I would just add, if there are some issues that just keep coming up in, in your marriage, it's a cycle, and, and you, you both agree that you just can't get through it without somebody else coming alongside. And first, I would start with pastor or, or your home group and, and go from there. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, when something keeps coming up over and over again and you're feeling, at the end of it, hopeless, uh, when, yeah, then that's a, a good sign. Cause, but in marriages, the reality is there are issues that our whole marriage, somebody just said, we went to a training and they uh, said statistics are there's like 69% of the issues that come up come up over and over and over again. And it's, they, you can learn to manage them and figure it out. Part of it is this, it's because of the two very different backgrounds and your values. Like it might be with regard to money. It keeps coming up because these values we have toward money are so deep-seated and they're different. And you learn how to work through it. Okay, whereas, but until you learn those skills, it's coming up and exploding. And so if that keeps happening, you just keep coming up to explosions on the same things over and over again. Yeah, you need help. Somebody can help you figure out what are those underlying issues and values. And you need to get understanding of, whoa, why is, why is that so important to you? So somebody needs to help walk you through that. That's a really good question. All right, other questions? Any cards? Okay. Uh, does your spouse have to be your best friend? How can we improve our friendship if there isn't strong friendship between us? I'd say I wouldn't spend a whole lot of focus on feeling guilty if your spouse isn't your best friend. I don't think the Bible says it has to be. But you want to definitely have a encouraging friendship. And so I would just start by putting the focus on that. I wouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about if they're my best friend or not. 
So establishing friendship, and I think a lot of that goes back to remembering why did we get married in the first place? What were the things that I love about you? I mean, there's a marriage that needs to be based on that friendship, that enjoyment of the other person. Do you want to address some of that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And also, uh, when we first got married, I just remember our um, mentors kind of told us that, you know, remember, he is your husband. He can't meet all your needs. You need to go to God first, and, and you need to have girlfriends also. So I, I think it's healthy to have other friends, but then if your husband and you do not have a good friendship, I, I think something is a red flag there for, for me. At this marriage retreat we just went to, they talked about having a marriage mentor, and I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. I never thought of that. You know, we've had other married couples that we, we've gone through our marriage, but not a mentor, somebody that's just a step ahead of you in, in terms of their marriage and can give you advice toward that. I, I think that's really healthy. And to the question, how do we improve our friendship? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to focus on. Yeah, some of the things we talked about. Become companions again. Spend time together. Um, do things that you both enjoy. I mean, that's a, for the man, that's, uh, I think in the recent version of the book, he said that was the number two thing as a, a co recreational companion, somebody that he can enjoy doing something with. So find something you both enjoy and, and spend time doing that. Uh, figure out what are, the way, what are the things you enjoy doing together. And then also, I think, as you work on this issue of being a student of your spouse, the, the needs we listed aren't going to be everybody's needs. Everybody's different. But the, the, the things that your spouse's needs are, if you begin focusing on meeting their needs, I believe that starts change, changing the temperature of your relationship, mm -hmm. gets you in a better place, and you'll begin to recapture that friendship. Yeah, I would go back to when you first fall, uh, fell in love with each other, just that euphoria, and why did you want to be together all the time? That will help along in the friendship, I think. Yeah. So be companions. Spend time together. Find, figure out the things that um, you like doing together. And then work at meeting the other's needs. I think all those you'll begin seeing the temperature change and a real friendship returning. Great question. And I want to add again to this thing of accountabilities. It's not easy, some of these things. You know, we want to do them, but we don't. Crossway with the home groups and accountability groups and then individual accountability partners, I think is, is fantastic. Take advantage of that. You know, something I wanted to do for 19 years, I suddenly was not and wasn't good at. Now when I get a little bit of accountability, that puts it over the hump and now it's working and making a big difference. What do you do when your spouse is not doing you, their part? For example, my husband is not leading, mm -hmm. so what can I do? Or the husband is saying, my, my wife is really not supporting and helping. So without telling them what to do, what do you suggest? Am I well, one thing I think that's helpful advice, uh, somebody talked about was submitting just that wives would realize God is not going to hold you accountable for the end result. 
if your husband says, no, I think we should spend our money doing this, and you're saying, oh, I really think that's a bad decision, and no, we're not going to do that, and you don't want to submit because you really feel it's wrong, um, God is only going to hold you accountable for whether or not you submitted. Now, that doesn't mean, you, if you have a good relationship, you should be able to talk about it. Um, if, if there's no room for discussion, then that's a very problematic relationship. But if your husband decides, no, this is what we're going to do, even though we don't have peace together from God, then God's going to hold him accountable for that. He's going to hold you accountable. Did you submit to him or, or not? Did you? Now, that again, it should mean in a good relationship you're giving input. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind. I think sometimes it's the heart issue. You know, I can say yes, but really in my heart, I'm resenting Wade for making that decision or, or making us do something because, you know, whatever. Um, but I think um, my heart wasn't right. So, like, just taking a moment, if I'm in the right um, frame of mind, if I take a moment and just ask God, am I being selfish to ask that? Or am I um, trying to get my way? Am I trying to be right? And um, oftentimes when we don't agree, we pray again. And I will um, give input to that. And a lot of time the way Wade leads is like, you know, I, I didn't think of it that way. And so he'll reconsider. But when I just push and say I have to have it this way because I just know I'm right on this, I, I find that he's defensive as well. So I... Yeah. So the question, what if the husband won't lead? Yeah, well, one thing we haven't really talked about that I hope was undergirding all this is we, to do any of this, we have to be dependent upon God. And, and it's not, oh, I'm going to follow these instructions. If it's devoid of God, then that's going to be problematic. That, so we need to be taking it to God. The Bible says if you lack wisdom, you don't know what to do in a situation, you ask God, and he is faithful to give it. So I believe that's a... A uh, very simple answer, but one is, have you asked God, God, what do you want me to do? Um, but if the husband is, is not leading, I think the wife should start by saying, well, my job is not to keep telling him you're not leading. My job is to respect him and submit to him. I would start by saying, well, have you, have you become a student of your husband? Do you know what makes him feel respected? Okay, do you know that? Many times, wife never even thought about it. Oh, I don't know. What does? I know what makes me feel respected. Well, that's not necessarily what makes him feel respected. Okay? And you're to submit and respect their, their same, different sides of the same coin. So that would be a big one. Find out what makes your husband feel respected and do it. And I think chances are you're going to, again, your obedience to Scripture will inspire him to change. That's the only way I see change happening. You inspire the other person by your obedience. I think, generally speaking, a lot of people, when when they hear the the verse about wives submitting to their husbands, there we have like a concrete idea in our minds of what that means, right? Because of this, the way that things are defined in the world. When you say like a husband is to sacrificially love his wife, concretely speaking, what does that look like per se? And I think this week, I think you can discover that when you take your wife on a date night and you say, honey, what are one or two things that I can be doing that would be really helpful for you? And my wife says to me, honey, if you'll take time for us to pray every day, 
and some time for us to discuss what's going on, what our schedules are. Usually we discuss what our schedules are and then pray. That is huge in our marriage. Okay? And that is, that's one of the biggest ways I can love her is to listen to her, what her needs are, and then to meet them. That, that in my mind, that is sacrificial love. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm saying, hey, what do you need? And then really working on it. And I'm so committed to working on it that I'm going to get my accountability partner to help me. That inspires commitment. Yeah, I, I think whenever Wei has taken the time up away from what he's doing to help me, that speaks volumes to me. Like I think um, when our, our children are little, he took the time to um, change the diapers, to, to take away the trash, to do those things that normally I would have done, but he just did it automatically. Like this week, um, I mean last night, especially when I was really tired. I knew I, I was going to need a nap before doing the night duty for my dad. Um, he specifically allowed me to have that nap, even though he was busy. And, and he t- kind of took um, my shift a little bit. And um, when Kia needed something, she came into my room. And I heard her, but um, Wei said, shh, let mom sleep. Um, let her sleep. And I heard that that's love to me because I know it was a sacrifice for him. And um, he needed to work on his sermon, but he allowed me to sleep so that I can um, do the night, night duty. So anyway, so afterwards I thanked him. And, and I, I just feel like a lot of times it's little, little things in life, you know, that um, really spoke to me. Like he, he made the time to make dinner when I know that's not his thing, when he took the trash out when he didn't need to. Um, just little things, yeah, that really spoke to me that he sacrificed um, in order for me to enjoy that, um, what, whatever I, I was doing for a little bit longer. That was great. Let's give them big hands.